I'm Leila Saad, and my life is driven by one burning question. How can I become a good ancestor? How can I create a legacy of healing and liberation for those who are here in this lifetime and those who will come after I'm gone? In my pursuit to answer this question, I'm interviewing changemakers and culture shifters who are also exploring that question for themselves in the way that they live and lead their life. It's my intention that these conversations will help you find your own answers to that question too. Welcome to Good Ancestor Podcast. Welcome back everybody to Good Ancestor Podcast. Today I'm speaking with someone who has really inspired me in the way that I show up um, and the way that I am in relationship to myself. And we'll talk about that during the, the episode, but I'm really excited to welcome Sassy Latte to the show. Sassy incorporates their love of makeup and fashion into their social justice work by juxtaposing hyper-feminine, glamorized, and provocative photos with thought-provoking political captions to encourage discussions regarding intersectional feminism and body politics. In other words, they believe that the worlds of intellect, politics, and fashion and makeup can coexist and empower one another. I found Sassy through Instagram um, about less than a year ago. I can't remember exactly when we connected, but I was really intrigued by the way that they had these super glamorized, beautiful photos, and then the captions were full of deep discussions around politics and feminism. So I'm really excited to have them here on the show today. Welcome to the show, Sassy. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, you are, I, I just want to like, before we dive into the episode, I want to like, thank you because you really gave me permission last year. And I don't think you realize that. Um, the way that you show up, um, when I first came across your photos, I was like, this is like probably the most beautiful human being I've ever seen, first of all. Thank <laughs> and, you so much. <laughs> and secondly, the way that you use color and completely broke the rules of what I thought was like, this is the way you have to wear makeup and this is the way you have to show up in yourself. You completely broke that for me. and. A lot of people I know really um, are constantly like, oh, I really like the way you do makeup. I really like the way you do makeup. And I just want to like go on record as saying the reason <laughs> why I do my makeup the way I do it is because of this person here, Sassy Latte. Well, now your makeup is inspiring me. So I'm excited <laughs> about this like loop of inspiration that's been created. <laughs> <laughs> that that's that's like a karate kid moment for me when you say that. <laughs> 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 so let's let's dive into our, our conversation. Um, Sassy, who are some of the ancestors living or transitioned, familial or societal, who have influenced you on your journey? I think that that's such a really great question. And I've been thinking about it, stressing about it, because I always kind of grew up thinking um, from a very like individualist mindset where, um, you know, you want to take 
responsibility and accountability and take um, sort of make it seem as though everything that you are is is of yourself right um, as opposed to being connected to someone or something greater and so um, although so much of how I live is transitioned from that mindset um, the idea of feeling connected to somebody else's work or their life or their existence is something that I hadn't really thought about um, but if I had to, I would probably say my great-grandmother. Um, my great-grandmother was really fascinating in that she was just really headstrong. Um, she, you know, so I grew up in Germany, and we moved back for a couple of years before moving back to Germany. Um, and in that couple of years, we spent a lot of time with my great-grandmother, and it was the first time that I really spent, like, long periods of time with her. And by then, she was already in her 80s. Um, but even at 80, she was just so opinionated and, you know, so unapologetic about her intellect. And that was just something that I'd never, especially from women, I'd just never seen before. Um, we would lay down together like all the time and we would just read, like she would teach me how to read words that I didn't know how to say. And she would talk about how important it is to understand language and how to politicize language. And uh, obviously as a young kid, that didn't mean anything to me, but it means everything now. Um, and I just remember just, you know, how unapologetic she was about her fashion, her style. She'd put on her wig when she'd go out. And, but at the same time, she was also very like steadfast in, in self-education and, you know, being unapologetic about her intellect. And that was just something, you know, throughout my entire life that has really driven, um, the way that I engage with the world, um, that we don't have to pick one or the other no matter how much the world wants to compartmentalize our, you know, identities, our, our needs, our presentation, um, so many things can coexist simultaneously. And she really taught me that. Wow. I, I really love what you said right at the beginning there where you talked about, and it's so true, but we never talk about this. You, you, you talked about this idea of we are, um, in the kind of these modern times taught to believe and sort of act as if everything that I am, I am because I created me. Yes. And I'm yes. not related to what happened in the past, especially when, especially I think when who we are, like we are so different from the family that we see around us. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily see people like ourselves in our family. I think it's so easy to feel like I'm the only one. You know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But it, but as you described her, you re, it, I was like, well, that sounds like you. <laughs> That's the best compliment. That in a million years, I would have never made that connection. <laughs> it sounded exactly like you. So that's it's pretty amazing. Um, I had no idea that you grew up in Germany. Yes, yes. I think it's always I don't talk about. Um, a lot of things about myself so much just because I feel like um, it's always been my goal to sort of decenter the individual in the work that I do um, and to remind people that we're all collectively part of communities and cultures and subcultures mm -hmm. and so part of that is to remind people that I'm, I'm part of them you know I'm part of a learning body I'm part of you know, a culture, a society, a collective group of people 
groups with an S of people that oftentimes intersect and overlap simultaneously. Um, and so I try to stay away from sort of like asserting authority over people because that's just not a way in which I feel comfortable existing. Um, and so part of my way of doing that um, to remain connected to you know groups of people and groups of identities is to sort of not always talk about my individual story as much, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear you and because, I'm, because I follow your work, I understand what you mean when you say that. Um, and again, it's fascinating because we live in a time where um, we have, you know, um, cult of personality. Uh, mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're just really trying to disrupt that. I think so. I think that um, I didn't know what neoliberalism was in a nutshell until a couple of years ago. And since um, kind of just, just touching on it, you know, I haven't done a lot of research, so I don't want to mislead anyone, but just touching on that concept really shook up everything for me. Um, and it was, it was in alignment, like, you know, making sure that I remain part of a collective was always in alignment with how I view myself and, you know, um, just the way that I want to engage with the world. Um, but reading about neoliberalism and then also thinking about the ways in which we perform our identities and um, the ways in which we're constantly competing for individual recognition and things like that, all of those things just suddenly became connected to me. and. Um, I just realized that it's just like, that's just not where I want to be. That's not how I want to function. You know, humans are an interdependent species. And um, I feel so empowered knowing that I'm part of a collective. Um, and I feel so humbled knowing that the way that I stand out is because I feel so connected. Mm. And it sounds like you're, it, you're really intentional about that. I have to be because I think it's we everything about us society is so driven. I mean, everything where so much of our lives now is online. I think that people can pretend like it's not, but everything is cyber now, you know, it's all digital. Um, and a digitalized existence can be very isolating and can be um, very individually gratifying, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it, it's important to in every step of the way kind of self-reflect and question, you know, how are you staying connected um, when so much of our lives is individualized? Mm. What I, and I know you, you, as you've just explained that you, you prefer not to kind of focus too much on your individual story, but what I do find fascinating about the fact that you grew up in Germany is this idea once again of that black people are not a monolith and we have these, we have so many different ways that we show up and exist in so many different um, experiences. Um, and, and so, yeah, I just, I really wanted to speak to that. Absolutely. I think that I've always been very, um, I feel like internationally cultures exist super differently. Um, and it's only become recently that I've seen um, international Inter on an international movement of black people asserting themselves as unapologetically black and separate from their surrounding cultures. Um, as having grown up in Germany, um, I grew up, my dad was in the military, so we did live on a military base, but my experience was different in that I was raised um, by my stepmom, and I've known my stepmom since I was four years old. So um, my dad was kind of an absentee father, 
um, which left it up to my stepmom to raise us. And, you know, at the time, my stepmom didn't really, wasn't fluent in English, so we just spoke German at home. We watched German TV, listened to German music. Um, every long weekend and holiday was spent with her family. So, um, so in that way, I was raised very German, but Black people in Germany weren't, especially like while I was growing up, weren't really asserting themselves as different from other ethnicities or races in Germany. They were just German. Um, and so I kind of grew up with that sort of mindset on the one hand. On the other hand, I was going to a military school. And in that school, um, so we stayed in Germany for a long time. Usually a tour is like a year or two. So there are kids, you know, cycling in and out relatively, you know, frequently. Um, and a lot of them are coming from America. And so the culture of, of blackness in a, an Americanized setting within Germany, you know, going to that school was entirely different. Um, and so I always felt super intimidated to like assert myself as unapologetically black, but still different from maybe American black in a lot of ways. Um, because I felt, I feel like the culture um, of America is very, despite people working their hardest to decolonize their minds, it, there's such an air of colonization about the ways in which um, Amer Black Americans think about themselves. There's still a lot of individualism. There's a lot of, um, you're not us because you're different or because we don't understand it or because we didn't experience it. Um, and so I think that it's always fun for me to show up and be like, you know, black can look like this too. Black experiences are global. You know, we don't only exist within Africa or America. Um, and it's really important for me to remain connected, I guess, as a global citizen in a lot of ways. Um, not only for Americans to recognize that blackness looks so different depending on where you are, but it's the same time there's so much in common and so much that's similar, but it's also important for me to remain connected to show other black people globally that it's okay to be unapologetically black. Like you're allowed to be black and German at the same time. And those two things don't have to mean the same thing. They can mean completely different things and those differences can coexist rather than combat one another. As someone who um, grew up as a third culture kid, and as someone who has third culture kids, I really appreciate you speaking to that. Um, because it, I know for me, it definitely took me a long time to, under, to kind of self-define, self uh, be unapologetically back black, but also self-define what that means to me. Um, Absolutely, yes. And it's, <laughs> and it's so interesting being someone in my position with doing the kind of work that I do to the audience that I do it and yet not fitting into this neat um, box of what blackness is thought of as being. Um, you know, my parents are, are East African with roots um, in the Middle East. Um, ah. So we're, we're East African, but we're also Arab. But I grew up mm -hmm. in I grew up in Wales and then in the in, in England, right? And then moved over here oh, wow. to Qatar. And so and my kids have my kids have all of that, but they grew up here. They were born and grew up here in the Middle East. And so they're growing up also having a different experience. And I think it's really um, what I have learned is that it's really important to to really define ourselves for ourselves, as um, Audrey Lord talked about. Um, 
and to know that even though we don't fit into what the mainstream or acceptable or what is seen as normal definition of what that is, even though we don't fit, we fit within ourselves. I think it's really important also to hold space for the idea that we're not alone. You know what I mean? That I, although we have our sort of like individualized definition of blackness, that even that story with 7 billion people on the planet, that story is going to resonate with how many people, like we've just found each other in this moment, you know? Yeah. Um, and this like connection that we have, I just feel so deeply that there are so many other people that have the same connection. They don't have words for it. Um, and they haven't found other souls who identify that way and who share that experience, but I know that they're out there. And I think that, um, that's another reason why I show up in the ways that I do is being so intentional about being connected and, and, and wanting to create new connections. Um, because I know that there are people out there who, who crave that and who need that. You know, if I had a friend like you growing up, I think that my confidence would have been so much different and something that I had acquired so much earlier, mm -hmm. um, versus having to do that work individually and internally later in life. Right. Yeah, I appreciate you. Um, you put a big smile on my face. <laughs> um, so I started off introducing you and talking about how you kind of smashed together these two things of fashion and makeup and um, uh, politics and, and feminism and, and, uh, and body politics and body justice. Um, talk to me a little bit about how that started for you. Um, long story short, people just started asking in, you know, real life day to day where I was getting close. And I was trying to build a following as like a makeup and style blogger. So I was like, check my Instagram, check my Instagram, um, where I could just tag everything and I wouldn't have to always, you know, detail the information out for people. Um, and then it just got to a point where I was like, I can't show this outfit because I'm so ashamed of and uncomfortable, you know, with my body. Um, and it's, it just got to the point where I was like, okay, I have to talk about hard things so that I can be comfortable with my body and, you know, show the things that I know that people, you know, want to see and things that I enjoy showing. And so it kind of just snowballed from there. It kind of just snowballed from my wanting to indulge in fashion and makeup and knowing that that's something that people are interested in too, but also unpacking um, a lot of my insecurities and, and recognizing that so many of my insecurities are rooted in systemic oppression and um, the ways in which my identity was framed for me by my oppressors and unpacking that and allowing for people to engage in the conversation as well. Mm. You know what, it's so funny, when I, whenever I see your posts and I see the, you know, the hyper glamorized, you know, these beautiful photos, like my first instinct is, oh my God, I love this look, right? <laughs> I just want to comment like, yes, you know, like, and then I read the caption and I'm like, oh, she's making me think now. <laughs> and it's, it, 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 I really love how you do that because um, we're so used to just scrolling and scrolling. And I, you know, as someone who loves makeup and fashion, I'm not going to say, it makeup and fashion is shallow, that it's, you know, meaningless, that it, no, I love it. <laughs> I really love it. Can it can be, you know, it can be, but I think that that's also my point. Right. Um, so somebody, a friend of mine, you know, they hadn't, um, 
ever, because I also, I'm really weird with compartmentalization. Like I love to compartmentalize things. So people in my real life for the most part are not following me on Instagram. So like my real friends, family, what have you, um, for the most part. And um, I remember talking to my friend and he was like, oh, so what are you doing on Instagram? Cause you're not on Facebook anymore. And I, you know, I explained it to him and he was like, yeah, you're a feminist in that thong bodysuit." And I was just like, okay, well, why can't those two worlds exist? Right. Am I suddenly devoid of intellect because of what I'm wearing? Or is it that I'm not allowed to be smart unless I'm dressed in a specific way that is dictated by the male gaze? Right. Um, and of course, you know, he didn't have an answer. But um, I was like, that's why I do what I do. Because I want people to know that like all of these weird ideas about the ways in which we have to present are like not real they're not true um and that's so much also about like just my existence as a non-binary person you know just this idea that everything has to be dichotomized that masculine is intelligent and you know feminist is like emotional and fun but it can't be intelligent and you know what does it mean to be masculine what does masculinity look like my existence is just saying that those things are not polarized. They can overlap. They can go backwards, forwards. They can be cyclical. They can coexist. Um, and so I just want to show up in a way that demonstrates that all of those things can be true at the same time, just as none of those things can be true at the same time or parts of those things can be true at the same time. Mm, you really, in, in, your, in your identity, but also in the way, you know, and how, from that, how everything that you create flows um really um are that example of both and yes yeah. i try i mean i i think sometimes it has to be very intentional um i think that the world especially when you consider you know the way that capitalism and marketing works and advertising um i think the world really works hard to compartmentalize identities and um desires and presentations because that's how you can market to people when you can pinpoint a demographic. So I think that sometimes I get wrapped up in that too, you know, because um, that's the world that we live in and those constructs are hard placed within society. Oh. Um, so pushing up against them sometimes gets exhausting and sometimes it can be confusing and I kind of just try to feel my way through all of it. Mm. You know, um, something I think about a lot when I think about this idea of what it means to me to be a good ancestor is I think about um, how important it is for us to be intentional about how we, you know, define ourselves, as I said earlier, and, and name ourselves. Um, and I know that on your Instagram, you just, you describe yourself as a political creative. Um, yes. and I, which I love, and I want, I, I would love for you to explain what that is, what, how you define that. Um, but I also know I think it was last year, we had a brief discussion um, because I'd posted something about the fact that I don't call myself an, an, an activist. And I know that kind of struck a chord for you as well. Yeah, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Just a few, probably about a month, month and a half ago, I kind of just really started to slow down. Um, there's something about the immediacy of social media that makes you forget things like self-reflection and rest and self-care that's not performative. Um, and so I just started to slow down and I, I had to question myself and, and just making sure that the reality was in alignment with 
with my intentions and I realized that they weren't. Um, and so part of that involved my, you know, considering activism and, and what does activism really mean? And I think in the age of online activism, there's so much celebration of the individual um, and that individual celebrity is not translating into community justice or community change. Right. Um, and we tell ourselves, and that again, it just ties back into individualism and neoliberalism. We tell ourselves that if an individual within a community is celebrated and they become rich and they're you know, popular, and that individual is doing something interesting, that it then trickles down to the community at large. And, um, and I'm guilty of that. This isn't finger pointing, you know? Um, but I recognize even that my work, I don't think that it was as substantial as I wanted it to be for the community at large, um, the communities that I care about, you know, marginalized communities. And so I had to like reconsider the ways in which I was identifying. I think that uh, online activism right now is really hot, you know, it's very popular, it's, it's, it's trending, um, but it's also not for as, hard as it's trending, it is not cultivating the change within society that would reflect the amount of work that people think that they're doing. And if we're not doing what we say we are, and we're not showing up the way that we think we are, and it's not yielding measurable change, I think that, you know, we all need to take a break from, from the high speed race and competition of social media, competing for validation and attention and space. I think that we all need to sit down and self-reflect and, and that's what I did. And in that moment, I realized that like, maybe I'm not the activist that I thought that I was. Like what community change, community change, um, is my work really eliciting? I'm happy to empower black women, but I want that that empowerment to turn around to black women empowering their children. And I want that those children to go in and empower their schools with the support of their parents. And I don't know if that's happening, but just looking at society, I would suspect that maybe it's not happening the way that I want it to. And maybe I myself need to spend less time online and more time in front of black women, reaching out to them and showing them, you know, this is how you can inspire your children to be citizens and to, you know, be political unapologetically and how to own and create and define themselves. Um, and so I had to stop saying that I was an activist because I feel like that should be something that is specifically reserved for things that are on the ground eliciting community change. Um, what I am is more of a creative. I'm creating opportunities for discussion. I'm creating opportunities for awareness. I'm creating examples of how to exist in a multiply marginalized body. Um, I'm creating ways to discuss systemic oppression, maybe that didn't exist before, or maybe did, but people didn't have the words. Um, so that's kind of what I, it is rooted in politics. Absolutely, my existence is politicized, but the work that I'm doing is more on the creative side, I feel like, and less on the activist side. Yes, okay, I, I love everything you just said, um, and you even helped to, you even helped to make things clearer for me around why I have never wanted to embrace the term activist. Um, and I very much have felt like that, if, if, if anyone who's just doing anything is naming themselves an activist, then doesn't that surely take away from the people who are on the ground creating community change? When people have said to me, you're an activist, I'm like, no, what, what community organizing am I doing? What, um, sure. you know, what protests am I attending or organizing? You know, what movements 
on the ground am I actually doing? I'm not doing any. And so, you know, you said, you said um, online activism is really hot right now. And it's so true. And I have, I've had to think about if we didn't have this online platform and we were just doing the work that we're doing, what would, what would be, how would I name myself? And that would be a writer and a speaker and a teacher. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And, and maybe it yes. has the effect, maybe it has some effects of what an activist's work would have, but it's not the same. Right. It's not the and same. I think that, it, you know, I hope that people don't feel that I'm, you know, speaking out of condescension or um, judgment. It's not that. I just think that um, when we conflate individual celebrity, which is essentially so much of what online existence is like we're focused on how many people are following us and how many people are telling us we're right you know what i mean um our minds are on the, all the wrong things <laughs> right um, it's not an it's not a judgment on people but it's just it's so important to differentiate the two because i think when activism becomes commodified um then it's more about capitalism than community change yeah. and when you know activism is about the individual and about celebrating the individual then the community gets left behind. Um, that disconnect happens. And where there's a wedge where you can pull somebody away from their community, um, I think that's when a lot of people are left vulnerable. And, and there are so many people in these communities who do rely on activists. And so I think, at least for me, in terms of my personal ethics and just kind of wanting to remain true um, and accountable, I just want to differentiate the two. Mm, yeah, and, and you're absolutely right. That That's definitely the way that I approach this as well. It's not so much about, I'm going to tell other people, you're an activist, you're not an activist. But right. it's more about, as you said, kind of being um, in integrity with your own personal ethics. And just checking yourself, right? Which is what it sounds like you had to do. You had to really check yourself and be like, let me, let me just be all the way real and honest with myself. Yes. I, but, you know, again, social media changes our psychology and, um, so and that's totally okay. <laughs> that's, you know, it, there's no judgment there. It's just a fact is that social media alters our psychology. And I think that um, in a way it reminds me of gambling, um, how you're in this like world uh, apart from the rest of society and it's always lit up. There's no darkness and it's just 24-7. Something's always happening and it's nonstop. Um, for people who show up in terms of politics online, that's essentially what their psychology is experiencing. It is always happening. It's always going. It never sleeps. Everything is immediate. And, and there's also immediate gratification based on your engagement um, that you receive from your audience. And so it's like you're just so tuned into all of that that it almost feels painful and disorienting to pull yourself back from that and to ask yourself important questions. I know it felt that way for me. I had the most jarring sense of FOMO as I watched my like numbers of engagement drop because I forced myself to take a break. I was like, I'm missing everything. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> um, and so instead of focusing on what I was missing, I decided to focus on what was missing from me. Um, in terms with, you know, just my ethics and my morals. Like I had to just sit and kind of do like a self-evaluation. Um, and I realized that, you know, so much of my psychology had changed because I was so wrapped up in the immediacy and self-gratification and the hedonism that is social media. Mm. 
I think that's something that we really need to think about as kind of living ancestors right now, because sure. there are those who, you know, our descendants and those who will come after our, we are gone, who will look back on us now and kind of the things that we created, but also the way that we have been influenced by our environment. And so much of, I feel like so much of what we're experiencing now feels experimental. Um, yes. And also so much of what we are creating is experimental. Yes, I and, agree. Yeah. And so um, as someone who, you know, I have a, I'm a cre I am a creative and an artist at heart. What I, again, why I'm always drawn to your work is I really see you pushing that envelope of creativity. Um, and it not being, you know what, I'm just thinking about how recently I've had, you know, this huge influx of um, people from the kind of knitting and making and fiber community. Mm, yes. So this creative makers community, um, but how politics has not been a part of that community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just think that break all that. Yeah, I, I, I'm the same way. No, I absolutely... And I am guilty of that myself, and I've really been, um, so that's actually where I started out in terms of like blogging and social media. I actually used to be <laughs> a hashtag mom blogger um, that's so way funny. back in the day, like <laughs> seven years ago, eight years ago. Um, I know, it's, it's somebody made a joke, and I was like, oh my gosh, you just described me, but um I used to do that and I, I still feel that so hard, like so deeply now. I have a personal account. I hope everybody has their like public account and then their, their private account on Instagram where they can just live in peace. Um, but I, I definitely do. And I I'm on during my break, I was very much tuned into my private account. And it's all these like, you know, mom bloggers with their beautiful children and their, their sunny trips to Africa. And every single thing is apolitical. Oh. Um, and all of their small shops with their t-shirts and their crafts and, you know, their signs that they're making and crochet, everything is apolitical. And it really forced me to kind of like pause and again, just self-reflect and, and ask myself like, why do I feel like those things have to be separate? Especially in the context of mom blogging where you're raising children right. and you're teaching children. Why do we feel like that has to be apolitical? Because I don't know anymore if there is a such thing as, as um, a lack of politics. Politics exists regardless. And you're sort of like this, this idea that you can separate yourself from it is, is not real. It's not true. Um, and so I just don't understand why. And, and, and it's a hard line. Um, there are lots of people who are just like politics are not allowed in this atmosphere. Um, but I feel like the refusal to engage in politics in a, is in of itself a political declaration. Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And when people say, oh, things are so political now, it's like, no, things have always been political. <sighs> always. Life is political. <laughs> there, yeah, there's really, there's truly no escaping it. I mean, you can brave the waters of engaging in it and, you know, working for political change, but there is no moment in which 
you know, the politics do not affect your life. Everything that we do breathe, eat, you know, have access to or don't is rooted in politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's so important to teach our kids that, I think, you know, from an early age to just ha start having those conversations. How, how old are your kids? My oldest is just turned 12 in December, at the end of December. Mm -hmm. And my youngest is about to turn four at the end of March. And so just kind of hopping on from, our, our youngest are both the same age. Well, mine is, oh, mine is four. <laughs> He's already four. But um, just thinking about, you know, being a mother of, um, of, of, of black kids, how I've had a lot of questions from white parents. How do I have this discussion about racism and white supremacy with my kids? And I kind of like, I've come to a point where I can kind of hear that question without getting angry. Um, sure. Because my first, my first reaction had been anger for a long time because it's like, I'm trying to figure out how I can have those discussions with my kids where I can have the discussion with them to make them aware of these things, but not let it make them feel inferior. Mm. And so yes. I can't kind of hold space for how you're going to have those discussions with your kids. Cause I'm trying to figure it out for myself. Um, if that makes sense. Um, how, yeah, you, how is that for you? How do you feel about this? So another thing that I never really talk about, um, you know, I, I never talk about my college education, um, especially not publicly. I'll mention it every now and then on my Insta stories, but um, I don't use that as a point of authority because, um, you know, institutionalized education is rooted in white supremacy. And so I never want to leverage that over marginalized communities. Um, because it's also an institution that seeks to, you know, kind of separate and um, segregate marginalized communities from that access to power. So I don't want to tap into that power as an accolade or as a point of authority. So I keep it to myself for the most part because of that. Um, but my husband and I met in college and um, I was, I've always been political, literally since I can remember. I've always been interested in politics and I've always been, you know, I was very much a white feminist <laughs> when I was younger, but that's just because, you know, who, who takes over textbooks and whatnot, you know? Exactly. So, we, we um, I, I was right there with you. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it took me a minute to realize that there were, there were levels to feminism and I wasn't on the right level. It took a minute, but, um, so I've always been political. Um, and my husband is very interested in politics. Um, uh, he has a degree in political science um, and then he ended up going to law school, not because he wanted to be a lawyer. That's, he's very shy, very, very shy. So he never wanted to practice law, but, um, he just felt like law school was like the next natural step. And so he, he went ahead and did that. So conversations around politics, feminism, and, and like law, the legal system and the government and things like that, being critical of the government are things that have always been present in our house. Um, so we sit down and we'll watch, you know, the State of the Union address with like my oldest as she's like three years old or whatever, and we'll talk about it. Um, and we watch the political debates and she always comes with me to vote. And, um, you know, and I talk about how important it is to take the time to understand the issues. And if you don't, you know, make time to ask questions, even if they're of your friends and things like that, and the importance of listening to people and asking the questions of those answers that you get. 
Um, so for, for my personal situation and setting, um, it's a little bit different because we've just been a political household from the very beginning. Mm. Um, and so we've modeled that for our kids from the beginning. I think the struggle that I'm facing now, um, cause I homeschooled my kids. Um, so this is like, uh, my, my oldest did a little bit of time, uh, at a private school and she really didn't like the culture of the school. Um, it was very Republican. The kids were very racist. Um, one kid, after realizing that my daughter had a black mom asked if I smelled like chocolate. Um, and so, you know, she felt very out of place and very uncomfortable in that environment, um, as it conflicted with her identity. Um, and she was never really allowed to talk about living in a household that is, you know, very left. I'm super, I'm very like socialist, a sneeze away from being communist. <laughs> My husband obviously is, is more like, more to the right of that. Um, but she could never talk about that at school. And I think once she mentioned that we voted for Barack Obama um, and all of the kids teased her. Um, and so this is the first year, you know, where she's older, she's at more of like a liberal, school um, there's a lot more variety um, in the population there and I think now she's at this point where she's like how do I assert myself as an individual and find confidence for who I am but still figure out how to fit in as part of, of, of a whole of this you know thing um, and I don't know how to answer that because I still feel so much like I'm trying to figure that out myself all the time, you know? <laughs> like, right. And maybe that in of itself is the answer. Maybe the answer is that it's an evolving, it's a process and a, and a case study on evolution. And there is no concrete answer. It's kind of just taking time to assess your environment and the people who are in it. And also taking time to check yourself as often as possible. And if you need to make a change, then make the change. There's mm. nothing, you know, wrong with that. So much of motherhood and, and parenting is, um, again, an experiment <laughs> as well. <Yeah. laughs> I was listening to this, um, I was watching this video by um, the author and speaker, Lisa Nichols, and she was saying how she had each year, each year when it was her kid's birthday, she would tell him, um, happy birthday, um, but be patient with me. I've never been a mother to a, a five-year-old. Oh my gosh, I love that so right? much. I've never been a mother to a nine-year-old. I've never been a mother to an 18-year-old. Um, and it's so true. And so it's like, yeah. you, you know, you can't ask me for pat formulized answers when I'm just trying to figure out this whole parenting thing, right? Especially I think when, like the, the situation isn't, it's not an isolated, like these things are not happening in isolation. Yes. You know, so as I, you know, grow up with my children, everything around me is changing and so am I in response. Yes. And so I can't give an answer to, to any of it because I'm still growing and learning and navigating and I'm taking my children with me. Right. Um, you know, I obviously didn't grow up in Trump's America. You know, people weren't so, um, you know, brazen with their hatred the way that they are right now. Um, and, it's really, you know, it's so hard to kind of formularize parenting, um, which I know that's what people want, but I also feel like that's part so much rooted in privilege when things around you are so safe and stable that you can ask for a formula. 
you know i think that's where my frustration with white people asking me that question comes from because i'm just like everything around me is constantly in flux i don't know what rights i'll have access to i don't know if my life could be in jeopardy and there are plenty of times where it has been um so i can't formularize any parenting tips for you to make your easy life even easier because the answers to those questions are so situational right um and they're so time sensitive and they're constantly in flux and they're constantly evolving. Right. Thank you for speaking to that. I, I really, that re- you've just, you've given me better language <laughs> instead of just my rage. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Sassy, you have had a journey with the body positive movement, the BOPO movement and the kind of, and, and diet culture. Um, I know that recently on your Patreon, you've been talking about marginalized trauma in BOPO spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have um, heard from many black women who started off in the kind of white feminist BOPO movement mm-hmm. and then quickly realized this movement is not for us. Um, and was not intended to really serve us, um, often tokenizes us, um, and does great harm to us. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about your journey with that and where you're at now when it comes to that that whole movement? That's a really great question. Um, I think in the beginning, it felt really good to be a part of what sh- what originally started out as a socio-political movement um, that gave self-representation and fought for the representation and rights of like mar- people who experience body marginalization. Um, that was the first space that I noticed that was recognizing fat phobia as systemic oppression. Um, whereas other parts of my identity um, still held space for fat phobia if that makes sense. Right. So it's like I could talk about being black within black spaces, but not about being fat. Right. Um, And so it felt like body positivity was kind of like the ultimate space that allowed for true intersectionality for all of these different intersecting identities and bodies. Um, But, you know, as, as with a lot of spaces, you know, it kind of became commodified. You know, people realized that it was a space that you could turn into a profit. Um, And as usual, you know, a lot of, I think white women don't recognize the power that they have in um, being able to gain momentum and celebrity and and representation in ways that people in marginalized bodies can't have access to. Um, So I recognize the space was taking a very weird turn. And um, even when I stopped, like focusing on the thin white women and the misrepresentation of body positivity that they were putting out. What I was left with was fat white women who were still very transphobic, very racist, very ableist, and many of whom only understood their fatness as circumstantial. Um, And so I felt completely lost. Um, So as a result of feeling lost, I realized that it just wasn't a space for me. I realized that blackness was only accepted within body positivity so long as it serves the purpose of of, um, making white women look as though they care about black women. Um, And 
I received a lot of bullying and cyberbullying for for wanting to hold space for discuss discussions on race that were really not accepted within body positive spaces. And I thought to myself, race is is absolutely a body marginalization. The ways in which black people are demonized and brutalized specifically for the color of their skin, something that they cannot change, is is so prevalent and it's so, you know, present and so obvious. It just seems um, almost offensive that having those discussions within a space that was meant for the self-representation of people to discuss about their body marginalization, but we weren't allowed to talk about race, it almost just seemed infuriating for me. Mm. Um, and I felt like the more I tried to have conversations about race within body positivity, the more backlash I felt. Um, I was called divisive, and um, of course I was called reverse racist. Um, and so I just decided that, it, that that just wasn't for me. I just, you know, I don't need to be hurting marginalized people for those who are, you know, experiencing body marginalization. I don't need to be fighting them. I don't need to be um, in opposition to them because I want for them to heal too. And I want for them to find justice as well. Um, and so I kind of just shied away from it and just moved into, I guess, what I would call, you know, body justice and doing, you know, intersectional body image work instead. Um, because I think right now body positivity means something so differently than what it did in the beginning. And is there, and is there um, first of all, I, I just want to say, uh, just listening to you kind of relay, you know, what that journey has been like. At first, my question was, what, what was the pushback when you began talking about race, and then as you began to speak about it, I was like, ah, yes, okay. So the, <laughs> <laughs> the fragility of not understanding that you can hold a marginalized identity and still be on the side of the, those who oppress. Um, yes. And, and, yes. And, not one, and not being able to kind of see the both and of that. Um, and I can imagine that that was incredibly painful in the same way that it, you know, kind of the, the mainstream white feminist movement has been painful for so many of us who are black and, and people of color because it's, it, you feel erased from the movement, um, a movement w from which you previously felt so seen and so um, held. Uh, suddenly you're not, you're not, you realize it actually wasn't for me. Um, but I, I wonder, has there been, you know, with, with the amount of, um, with the amount of discussions that we're having now, especially with educators, activists, um, uh, you know, writers who are talking about the importance of intersectionality and who are talking about, who are really critiquing everything that I read, that I have read about the body positive movement has been a critique. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is good which is good there was a time where that that wasn't a thing so right and my and my entry into it because the first time I heard Boko I said what's that um and it was it was actually black women who explained to me what it was and then explained to me the critique of that as well um I'm wondering if are people in that movement listening yet that's a really good question and I don't I don't know how to answer it because I feel like that the answer to that question is so tied to privilege. Right. Um, 
I would probably say that a lot of the larger accounts are not uh, because they don't have to. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, yeah, I do. I've gotten a lot of apologies. <laughs> Well, you know, there's 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 a certain beauty in the calmness of not having to be accountable, you know, um, and so I. But I would say that fat women, or you know, um, women who are multiply marginalized but are not black, so maybe fat disabled women or fat disabled trans women, um, have been messaging me saying that you know, they were so hyper-focused on being seen for their fatness that they didn't realize that the space was still transphobic or ableist. Um, and in coming to that realization, they apologize because they know that if that's the case, that the space was also racist. Um, and they apologized for not believing me and not, um, you know, feeling a sense of protectiveness over me. Um, and, you know, I'm appreciative of the apologies and I'm appreciative that that these multiply marginalized white women are coming to their to their senses, I guess, on in a way. But I'm also disappointed because those women themselves, as as body positivity comes to mean loving your your thin body, um, it's disappointing to to think that they are coming to me in hindsight um, after having lost the momentum and the power that they had over black women who felt uncomfortable. Yeah. I feel that. I really feel that. Um, and, and what I have seen from um, people like yourself is, and, 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 and women and people of color in the kind of feminist movement more broadly is this idea of, you know what, I don't need a seat at your table. I'm, I'm creating my own table. Well, what is the table, you know? So we, we have all these conversations about, you know, the table or the stage and how it can be shared. And I'm just like, you act as though these spaces exist within the same plane. Mm. But if we understand systemic oppression and social equity, we know that they're, they're, we're not existing on the same plane. We know that because of systemic oppression, black people are existing on a plane below white people. So what table? What interdimensional table are you speaking of that black people can have a seat of but when we're not even on that, that plane, you know? Um, and I think that that's something that I had to painfully admit to myself because I think that, you know, part of the lies of privilege is this concept and, and even marginalized people internalize it is that we are all one and the same and we all have the same opportunities. And, um, and because we internalize that lie, we think that this, imaginary table exists for anybody to come and take a seat up at but the truth of the matter is this table exists for white people on a white able-bodied cisgender heteronormative plane um and for people who are not living a life within those categories they are not existing on that plane there's no chair for us to be able to pull up to that table um, and I think that we spend so much time staring up at that plane that we don't exist on, trying to figure out how we can get to that table. And what we really need to be doing is, you know, recognizing that that's not a plane of our reality, of our existence. Our reality is where we are and that we need to find, you know, confidence and, say, and cultivate a safetyness for ourselves mm. where we exist. And equity is going to look like us rising, not just sitting at a table that already exists. I love that so much. 
<laughs> I love that so much. And, and it just struck me as you were talking that actually to be able to have a seat at that table would mean having to be in alignment with what being at that table means. Absolutely. So not Absolutely. Just, so not just kind of like becoming white or lighter or, you know what I mean? But also yeah. saying, okay, so race, but also able-bodiedness and also transphobia mm -hmm. and also, you know, all of those things that I'll just have to swallow everything that I believe in so that I can have right. a at that table, which I'll never like get that's to important to recognize that table already exists and it has for hundreds of years. Yes. You know, that table represents all of the constructs that we are trying to dismantle and disrupt. Mm. And, and getting an invitation to sit at that table is literally an invitation to remain static, to keep things the way that they are. I don't want to sit at a table that represents the things that I'm trying to, to tear down. Right. Set the table on fire. <laughs> so we're gonna yeah, it's, it's really not some sort of like, it's really not a humbling or pleasant invitation. It's right. really kind of like a prison sentence. And another thing that I don't think enough people talk about while they're acting like there's this, you know, global giant wrapping around the earth sized table is that power is finite. There is not an infinite amount of power. If that was the case, we would all have it. Mm. Power is finite. So acting as though having a seat at the table suddenly gives us power is such a joke. And I don't know why we all feed into it so much, but it's not real. You know, there are not unlimited seats in the government, you know? Mm. The 1% is the 1%. It's not the hundredth percent, you know? So I think that people, you know, really have to come to terms with the fact that, you know, finite, the power is finite. And so as people in marginalized communities gain access to power, the, the effect of that is that people who have power are going to have to give some of it up. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for speaking on that. Um, Sassy, I, just before we jumped on this uh, call, I was reading this article on your Patreon. It just was like the perfect thing for me to read today. Um, because I had posted uh, a post today and it was, it, it said something like, good morning to everyone except the colonizers who created and upheld the European beauty standards that try to convince <laughs> me my whole life that this kinky hair and these um, juicy lips and this brown, you know, melanin skin were ugly but now try and sell it back to me on the bodies of white women and try and tell me yes, that. Yes, yes. Uh, and so many people, white people, missed the entire point of the post because <laughs> what they were commenting was, you're beautiful, F their beauty standards. And I was like, Thank I'm you. actually talking about you. <laughs> I'm not actually talking about some other people. I'm actually, talk I'm actually asking you to examine how yeah. you have upheld the, those standards over me, right? And so the, right, article, right. the article that I read on your Patreon was called When Racism is Subliminal and Kind. Yes. And it was yes. a about your experience with your hair and going to the hair salon and being the client of a white um, hairdresser who was very kind and yes. very racist. <laughs> 
Yes, she was very encouraging and very yes. racist the whole time. <laughs> the whole time. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I really want people to go and subscribe to your Patreon and, and to read that. But um, can you tell us just a little bit about what that experience was and how um, racism isn't just about people in hoods? Right. Be the kind you know, of nicest think, person. I think that there's this really fascinating, profound. Um, so the construct of individualism is definitely rooted in white supremacy and it kind of just goes all the way back to like, you know, I think the 17 or 1800s, you know, during the slave trade where black people were always defined as part of a collective and white people, you know, were individual upstanding citizens. And that mindset has been, you know, passed on from generation to generation. And at this point now it's something that white people don't even consider. So white people always think of themselves as, you know, not me, but yes, them. Um, and they don't realize that me is part of them. And those are one in the same. Yeah. Despite small, like minute differences, overall, it's the same. You've had the same um, opportunities. You're afforded the same privileges. You're afforded the same safety and the same benefit of the doubt. And you have access to the same representation. Um, so I think that when people... And I also think that in the context of teaching about racism, it's always taught as something that looked a specific way in the deep South during a specific time. And it doesn't look like that anymore. Mm. Unless you come across the offbeat chance that somebody is embodying that image from that era. Um, and it's so fascinating that people have truly, deeply within their hearts, believed that that is the only way that racism manifests itself. Um, and that's why I share about my experiences with, you know, with racism, like my hairdresser complaining about how nappy my hair was after, you know, I was told that this person could do all types of hair, you know, so... Um, or, you know, just, just being clearly disgruntled and, you know, not really knowing how to handle my hair or thinking that my hair would be similar to white people because, you know, it's just hair. Yeah. Um, and also just the conversations that we were having and the way that she was so confident when she was like, no, hold the phone. That's not about racism. That's about this and that. I'll tell you what it's about. And... Um, and, and she was, you know, very, like, conversational and very nonchalant. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't some sort of, like, she w went back and grabbed a pitchfork and pointed it at me and said, now you hear this. You know, it wasn't like that. Hmm. We were just talking the way that you and I are right now. But in the process of our conversation, everything that I asserted as a racial um, aggression against me, she reframed as not being racialized and completely devalued every experience that I had and gaslit me along the way. And if you remove those things out of the context of race, like if we were talking about a domestic violence situation in which an abusive husband gaslit his wife, suddenly those behaviors make so much sense to people. But because you're talking specifically within race, people don't get it because racism has to look the way that it did in the 1950s for it to make sense. Right. And, you know, as I, as I read 
your words, I was also like, I, I kind of had this like physical reaction um, because sitting in the hairdresser's chair and this person has literally got their hands in your hair. Um, yeah. And all I could see was them yanking it and huffing and puffing and changing the brushes and not figuring out <laughs> kind of, you know, it's your fault, you know, and then you feel like I, even though I'm here as a cl paying client, even though I asked before I booked in that, can this person do my kind of hair? And I was reassured that they can, even though all of those things, I feel like I have brought a problem to them and the problem is me. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, I think that that definitely just underlined um, feelings in my past. You know, it took a long time for me to get to the point where I was really okay with the texture of my hair, right. um, with the color of my hair, all of these things, you know, it really took a long time. And I still struggle with that. You know what I mean? Um, I just had a conversation the other day with Shishi Rose about how I really wanted to cut my hair because I just, I don't have time to do a twist out with hair that comes down to my chest. I just don't right. have time for that. Um, and she was like, you know what? I know exactly how you're feeling. She was like, I feel like I got to grow my hair just to let white women know that black women can grow hair. <laughs> and I was like, that, I mean, I had the biggest light bulb moment. I was like, is that what I'm doing? Am I doing this for white women just to show them that it's possible that I exist, that my tresses matter? And, and you know, and that's kind of how I felt sitting in that chair where I was just like, there's a part of me that should have been more bold and unapologetic. And there's a part of me that should have been like, well, I was assuming that you were qualified to handle this, but if you can't, please, right. you know, pass me and my money on to somebody else. Right. Um, but instead I was like, you know, just kind of sitting there hoping and praying that she would find my hair, you know, easy to do and, and that she would realize that it's not so much of a burden and things like that, you know? Um, so when I was in that experience, it really just took me back to like a point where I felt like my hair was ugly and it was definitely a sign of my blackness. Um, and I just felt so small, you know, in that moment. Hmm. I, yeah, I feel you. And I've been there and I've been there. Um, and, and the person who was doing my hair wasn't even white. They were, they were Arab, right? Because, mm. I, because anti-blackness is anti-blackness everywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So, you know, I was asked, don't you, don't you want to straighten it? Like, don't you want, we can put this treatment in it. And I was like, I'm trying so hard right now to embrace <laughs> my natural hair. And I just feel so ugly right now. And it's, and that was, you know, just after my daughter was born. So she's, she's, um, she's nine now. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, I was yeah. so like, oh, my hair is such a burden and I'm trying to do this natural thing, but it's not working. And I, I give up I went, and I went back to relaxing it until, um, you know, when I shaved it off um, at the end of 2017 and started over. And I was, it's funny, I was looking in the mirror just before we came on this call and I was like, I just really love how the, the kind of quote unquote messier the mm -hmm. texture looks, the more I love it. I think that's kind of the way that I am too. I think that 
as much as I am grateful for the natural hair movement and showing me that black women can have hair, we don't have to twist it out and, and, and make it look, you know, in any, in any kind of way palatable. Right. Like it is in of itself, just something beautiful to behold. And we don't have to like package it in a way. Cause I feel like so much of that is, is about making sure that white people are comfortable with our blackness right. um and it, and that's not a judgment on anybody because you do what you have to do to survive and i'll support you and i'll love you and i'll protect you that's mm -hmm. not a judgment but i do think that that's part of it is that you know we have this thing where we're just like ooh, you can't just just wash and just let your hair be and let it dry the way that it just looks you know what i mean right you have to brush it and twist it and coil it and put the ponytail like this and i just don't want to do any of those things <laughs> like, i'll be honest with you and i, I don't want to find a new way yeah. to be stressed about my hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I love it. And, you know, my hair, I recently had it braided, took the braids out, did a twist out, and then have just kind of left it over the past couple of days. And every day I wake up and it's a different, it looks different. And yeah. I'm like, this is cool. It's so, it's so cool. I never know. Tomorrow it could, it's going to look completely different. But, yeah, it's, black hair is so political. <laughs> So, there's so many layers to it and there's so much inside of it um but I, I like I said you know I really I really love that that article that you wrote sharing your experiences of it um because so many for me as a black woman reading that I felt validated um and I and I'm sure that for people who who are white and thinking oh wait, I'm just having a normal exchange with a black person here not realizing <laughs> This person right. is like sitting there like this, this, this moment is going to replay in their mind for weeks. Um, yeah, just kind of blows my mind. Sometimes. I wish that, I wish that more white people would listen and sit with it and, and, and recognize that when we're talking about it, it is about them. And rather than creating excuses and, and trying to reframe circumstances and rather than asking questions and, and definitely rather than othering themselves from the problem or from that person, I wish that they would just listen and sit with the fact that, first of all, that's them. Yeah. They do it too. Maybe not that way. Maybe not on that day. Maybe not in a hairdressing setting, but they do it too. Mm -hmm. where they're just like, mm, I'm going to second guess your experience and probably say you're wrong and you don't know what you mean. They do it too. Um, so as I share these experiences, it's not about this white girl in this moment and how she behaved towards me. It's really about white people being cognizant of the ways in which they interact with people who are different from them. And recognizing in themselves are there times where i was super kind and super conversational but also super racist mm. yeah um sassy i just want to get kind of come back to you kind of just acknowledge i want to acknowledge you um for the body of work that you are creating um and not just articles and videos and Instagram posts, but also the way that you are really like, even in this conversation, you have helped me reframe so many different things. Um, and I love that you do it, not just through the things that you write, but also in the way, in the way that you be. <laughs> the way oh, that thank you. Are. 
the way that you're intentional about how you be and how you do. Um, and as we, as we wrap up, I just kind of wanted to reflect that back to you because it's, um, we are living in a time where, like you said, online activism is really hot. Um, the, the kind of the idea of the individual succeeding is really hot. Um, and it, for me, as I, as I, uh, learn from you and read your, you know, things and, and kind of watch you as you grow on your journey, how you're being and what you're role modeling really kind of oh, like takes all the, the, the walls off of the box, if you know what I mean. And, and kind oh, thank of you. opens things right up and has me constantly thinking, Hmm, how am I showing up? How am I thinking about this? What do I feel about that? What do I want to do about that? Um, so I just really want to acknowledge you for that. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's like the sweetest thing anybody said to me all month. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before I ask you my final question, um, where can people find you, follow you, support your work? You can um, find me at sassy underscore latte on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, and you can support my work um, either through my PayPal, which is just PayPal slash sassy latte. Um, as well as on Patreon, um, which is patreon.com slash sassy latte, where you will be rewarded with exclusive content. I think that's the best way to um, find my work, more work, but also um, engage in a different setting than on social media. Yeah, and I, and I will say to, to everyone listening, you know, you have a very, um, you, you really engage with your community, and they're really deep nuanced conversations that happen in your community and so for anyone who's really looking for that and for look, looking to have their mind really stretched and looking for um that nuance and the both and i really recommend um joining sassy on patreon thank you um okay so our very last question what does it mean to you to be a good ancestor um do you specifically mean uh like the legacy that I'd like to leave behind one however, day? However you want to define it. Oh man, who decisions. No, um, so I think for me, it just means trying. I can't think of anything beyond that. Everything that I'm doing is just literally putting in intentional effort and just trying to be the best person that I can be and to really just take time to make sure that I'm staying within alignment within my values um, and within my ethics and just always kind of like striving for that um, and just recognizing that trying is going to look different on different days, but the effort still needs to be there. I don't ever want to um, perpetuate the idea that it's okay to get comfortable and become complacent and just disengage. I think that, um, for me, being a good ancestor is about constantly trying to be engaged and constantly trying to have these conversations and trying to reframe um, current discussions and um, recognizing that it's kind of an unending process. Um, and also just trying to find the beauty and the joy in all of the messiness that is kind of encapsulated with putting forth that amount of effort. Mm. Thank you, Sassy.
I hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights and find deeper answers to what being a good ancestor means to you. We'd love to hear what some of your aha moments have been from this conversation. You can follow the podcast on Instagram at at Good Ancestor Podcast. And drop us a comment to let us know what some of your biggest takeaways have been. Thank you for listening and thank you for being a good ancestor.